You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Father Paul tackles the versatility of the Hebrew word Elohim, exposing the frailty and reductive tendencies of English translations. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Let's get to that Elohim. Now, you, my hearers, heard Elohim. Okay, Elohim is God. Well, the trouble is, and this is not immediately, that's the problem. You have to wait to realize what I'm saying. You cannot decide today that Ha Elohim, which is the Elohim, is also found in the Bible. Now, obviously, in English, it's difficult because you don't use the before God, but that's what we're dealing with. What is the difference between Ha Elohim and Elohim? When both are translated, even by the Septuagint, already by the same word. So why is the author using two, especially in one phrase. Let me go to it so that I can give already from the beginning striking examples. And Enoch walked with Ha Elohim. That is why Elohim took him to say that he didn't die. Why did the author jump between Ha Elohim and Elohim? Oh, it's not important. We all know. That's our reaction. But I'm asking you to respect the text. Then you have a third word, which is El, whose plural is Elim. And Elim are always translated as gods. And you assume these are the many gods. But where is the trouble? The trouble is that Elohim sometimes have to be understood as gods, as the other gods. Check your translations if you know Hebrew. And you don't need to check. Trust me on these things, okay, you hearers. But you can ask anyone. Then you have Ha'el. So you have El, whose plural is Elim, and you have Ha'el. And you have Eloah. You could hear the Arabic. Ilah. Whose plural technically is precisely Elohim. 
And what do you do with that? And here I would like to mention an article that someone sent me just recently, two days ago, by someone called Scott C. Jones, who wrote an article, Rumors of Wisdom, Job 28 as Poetry, and who says right from the beginning, in the writing of this article, you know, Job is very difficult in the original, much more difficult than Psalms. I used only the concordance in Hebrew, famous, which everyone should have after having learned Hebrew, by a German Jew, Gerhard Lisowski. It beats any dictionary. Because he gives you, and the nice thing, he did it at the time where he didn't have computers. It's handwritten. It's photographed. And at the beginning of each word, under which he gives you all the occurrences, and not just the word, the place, the chapter, the verse, and he gives you, that's what impressed me most about him, at least a phrase of four words around it, so that you don't have to go yourself every time, unless you need it. Phenomenal. But then at the top, he gives his take in the three acceptable languages in scholarship at that time, you know, English, German, and Latin. Now they are adding Spanish. I like that in the new Biblia, Stuttgartensia. I'm going to mention it to my friend, Daniel Ayush, unless he's aware of it. But sometimes two words, sometimes three in the same language. He just gives you the possibilities. But he doesn't give it every time at each one, that the general. And then he doesn't leave it to that because that's what the dictionary do. Maximum, they give you two examples. That's why your professor could not have applied the same thing to Lisovsky, because the answer is Lisovsky is not imposing anything on you. He is just giving you all the references. Let me speak in his honor that he details, obviously, the seven verbal forms he differentiates. And he has the form Qal followed by Nifhal. But he has also for the nouns phenomenal. First the nouns as they appear. And then specifically you have another list where as object and a third list as subject. So you have three lists, different lists. So he's helping you to the maximum. Now, are you bound by that? Absolutely not. You can argue with him that this is not an object. You can do whatever you want. And I don't know if he wrote something else, but for me it's enough that he did that. And, you know, for him to do that, he was not sitting enjoying coffee with two colleagues at podcasting and so on. No, trust me, you can't do that. Okay.
Well, my hearers, please remember that I'm reading from notes I have worked on to do the podcast. I'm not just blabbering. So he used this to figure out what Job was saying. For whatever its value, it reflects what I'm trying to tell you. Elohim, Ha Elohim, El, Elim, you can forget about it because it's always in the plural. Ha El, Eloah, they are all translated as God. That's very sad. Why would the author did not simplify it by using one word? Now, is it important? Yes, because in 34 verses between Genesis 1-1 to 2-3, which is usually considered as the Elohistic narration of creation where you have only the word Elohim, the second one in 2-3 you have Yahweh Elohim, we'll talk about it. 35 times in 34 verses. I mean, come on now. There is something about it. And yet, right from the beginning, one is faced with a grammatical oxymoron. It is the singular bara, which is translated created, that is used with the plural form Elohim. There is no one who knows Hebrew that would debate the fact that Im at the end is the masculine plural of a noun. No question about it. Now, what is stunning, and I want to repeat that, right from the beginning, and notice in Hebrew, the verb comes before the subject, the noun. After in the beginning, you hear bara. So you have to expect a singular masculine gender-wise noun. That's the rule. Because if you have a feminine, you would have to hear bara. Okay? So there is no joke about that. It's not like English. She reads and he reads. It's the same and they read and no. You have a rule. Let me tell you why I'm stressing this. Perhaps my colleagues here are not aware of that. That you can't apply here the Arabic. Because in Arabic, the rule is when the verb comes before the noun, which is a regular phrase, if it comes after the noun, it becomes a nominal phrase. I may have explained in other podcasts, but let's not go into that. In Arabic, you have to use the plural form with a plural noun if the verb is used after the noun. But if the verb is used before the noun, the rule says it is the singular that is used even with a plural subject. Richard, 
you must know that. Okay. So here again, we have to be careful. So I'll be using in Arabic not to show off because I know it. I use what I know to teach you, as I said earlier, methodology. I don't fall in the trap. Oh, I remember that from first grade in my school. Who is the I who is speaking? Another example, which happened to me in my class of Hebrew that I'm giving here at St. Elizabeth. In the grammars of Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, when you are using the pronoun, you use them in this way. I, you, you feminine, he, she. Okay, as in English. But the tricky thing is that in the verbal conjugations, you conjugate he, she, you masculine, you feminine, I. So I use this because I know how people do in modern Hebrew. I said, you should know exactly as Alex know the conjugation. And I said to him, conjugate the verb katab. And in modern Hebrew, you conjugate, I write, you write. There you go. In my class of Biblical Hebrew, I would have failed him because this is not how you are taught. And that's the way it is. Now, what does it have to do with the creation of the word in chapter 1? Well, first of all, I don't know if chapter 1 is talking about the creation of the world. So already your question is questionable. All I'm saying, there is an oxymoron here. And in relation to whom? To your God. Or at least you assume it is the scripture, but at least in English it's your God. And the author seems to be toying with God. Are there many or one? Well, the form is many, but the verb tells me that he is one. Really? <laughs> then how come in other places you're forced to translate Elohim in the plural? So what is the author trying to do? Well, let me take you by the hand. So for one to start solving the dilemma on the basis of one's conception of the noun in translation, which is God, is ridiculous, if not ludicrous. I'm convinced that if the fathers of the church knew some Hebrew grammar, some of them would not have needed to wait for Genesis 1.27, where we hear, then God said, let us make man in our image, in Genesis 1.26, and would have pontificated on the Trinity already on the basis of Genesis 1.1.
And guess what? You see, Father Mark got me hooked on Google, which I do now and then. I Googled about Trinity and so on. And obviously you get stuck with Protestants here in North America. And the guy, obviously, to impress you that he knows Hebrew, he said, there are flickers about the Trinity in the Old Testament. And he started with Genesis 1.1. I said to myself, he beats the fathers of the church because they were reading Greek. They had to wait until 126. Now, I'm sure that all my hearers are smiling because they are waiting for Father Paul to tell them. This doesn't mean that I endorse this funny thing called Trinity. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you are injecting Trinity, which is a word that does not exist in the Bible. It's trias, triad. It's made up the first time we encounter it, and it seems not in relation to the Trinity, is in a writer at the end of the second century. But the funny thing is that, remember, we're not talking Arabic. In Arabic, you have the dual. You have the one, the two, and the plural. In Hebrew, it is Proto-English. <laughs> you have singular and plural. So my thing, why would plural mean three and not two or four? So we have to be really serious about that. Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.